as normative. This man in particular was one of the leading church planters in the Presbyterian Church in America. And they sent him out here and sent him to San Francisco. And uh, when he got there, he said, I can't plant a church if we don't ordain women. So he decided to ordain women, so he left our denomination. We don't ordain women. And that's not because we're macho, male weirdos. Uh, it's because we believe that God has established distinctions. And those distinctions preserve actually the gospel. You'll see that. Anyway, he couldn't accept this, so he joined another denomination. And just a few months ago, he declared that this city church in San Francisco now will be accepting as full standing members homosexuals and gay marriage. So, I believe that we are seeing in this movement, it's called gay Christianity, the next great heresy that will take over vast segments of the church. If we do not know how to confront it, not simply by citing certain verses that denounce homosexuality, that side says there are only six verses, there are six pesky verses that we don't have to listen to or we can twist in various ways. Um, clobber texts, they're sometimes called. You know when people use those terms, you know they're short on true Bible interpretation. <laughs> But that's what they're saying, you see, and if we simply cite back to them these verses, I don't think that we will make much impact. But even more than that, those churches perhaps are lost, but we need to strengthen the churches that are not yet lost and give them a strong biblical understanding of, of why the Bible will not accept homosexuality. So... Uh, my first lecture, oh yeah, I did come to lecture, not to just waffle. Uh, <laughs> my first lecture wants to look at a pagan cosmology, specifically as it is expressed in this whole agenda of homosexuality. And I hope that will be useful to you to build up your faith by understanding that this event of homosexual marriage is not a cute affair of two men in tuxedos kissing each other, isn't that nice and affectionate and so on, but it actually is the symbol of the very destruction of Western civilization. You know, people would say, but this doesn't harm anybody else. That's what the homosexuals said. It's just uh, our little celebration that we can love one another, and it won't harm you. Well, you've already been seeing <laughs> how this is harming the church, how this is harming bakers and photographers and everything else, and free speech, and it will get worse and worse, and it will get worse in terms of a moral dis dis disintegration of Western culture, because there will be, and there are, no criteria really, for any sexual morality anymore. And this will be taught to our children, of course, as they are in public schools. And we will be producing generations of children who have been brainwashed into believing that there is no moral structures for sexuality. And, of course, that will produce all kinds of other things because sexuality is the essence of who we are. And everything follows from that. Now, you know, as I talk about homosexuality, I do believe that we must show great care and respect. There are many pitfalls and landmines. As we confront homosexuals, the first thing we have to remember is that they are creatures of God made in his image. There's no way that we can dismiss them. They deserve our respect because they are made in God's image. 
And they need to hear God's love for them. And some of them have reached the place where they are through great suffering. Uh, Many have been abused as children. Now, they don't say that publicly, but as a matter of fact, studies uh, have been showing lately that many homosexuals, when you find them on their own, will tell you that they were abused as children. So we're dealing with injured people, and uh, we must be careful because we are just as uh, injured people. We're sinners as well. And this is why in the second place, the first place, we need to show great care and respect. This lecture, by the way, is not a how-to, but I just thought I should say some of these things so that you know that I am thinking a little bit about this. Uh, We should avoid moralism. You must remember that uh, we are all broken people, and we only ever speak from a point of view of humility. Sexually, we're all broken in many ways. None of our marriages, except Nate's, is perfect. And, and, and <laughs> but, you know, moralism is not the first place to start in our personal relationships, at least, with the homosexuals. We rarely hear, I don't know, probably you might hear it in this church, Jonathan Edwards' uh, sin is in the hands of an angry God, but um, that's not the typical way that you hear churches preaching these days. And I think we will lose our hearers if we get on our moral hobby horse and tell people God hates fags and that kind of thing. I I think we do have to show a certain kind of respect and an awareness that we are also sinners. So moralism cannot be our approach. Because Christianity is not moralism, it's grace. Now, of course, we do have to talk about morals. The law is absolutely essential, and it drives us to Christ. But there's a way of talking about it, of course, which leads to understanding grace. But another thing we must avoid that we are finding many Christians doing today, and that is to avoid sentimentalism. Sentimentalism. Our culture today displays an inordinate sympathy for issues of personal identity and personal freedom. And uh, many people are very worried about, you know, showing any kind of uh, attack on a person's individual rights. And so, uh, sentimentalism is often the way that people respond to this problem. A number of Christians are now expressing this fact. David Gushy, called a leading evangelical ethicist, I don't agree with that description, says, my heart got broken, so I began to be able to see Scripture through the tears of our most oppressed group. That's exegesis by sentimentality. Kristen Bell says, marriage gained straight is the gift to the world because the world needs more, not less love. And so... Many evangelicals in our time are beginning to be so affected by the issues of sentiment and personal emotions that uh, they're opening their minds to this possibility as a 
Christian possibility. Well, how do we approach this issue? We uh, are often accused of bigotry, hatred, homophobia, discrimination, judgmentalism, stupidity for being on the wrong side of history. That's an easy one for people to say. All you need to say is whose version of history, by the way. But it is true that many of the methods we've used in the past are not working. As I said, moralism doesn't work, traditionalism doesn't work the way the church has always done it. Just citing the verses against homosexuality really don't work, I think, because all you can do really is show the negative side of things. And so I come to my lecture proper in proposing that the most significant, in my experience, the most significant way that we can respond to this massive issue as it grows under our noses is through worldview or cosmology. Cosmology is a word about the cosmos. I, I like that approach because you cannot be, you will be, but you cannot be accused of personal animus or hatred if you say, this is how the world is made. This is how God structured things from the beginning. And you propose for people to see that the world is held together in a very understandable and logical way. And I think that that is the best way to approach this massive issue. So, how do you establish a cosmology or worldview. I have come to the conclusion that there are only two worldviews. So it's nice and simple. We've tended to think there are 365 different ways to God, and it's very complicated. And how do you find the right one? Well, there really are only two. Colin Gunton, a British theologian who died in 2003, was one of the most important British theologians of his generation, said this. Listen carefully. It's very simple. There are probably ultimately only two possible answers to the question of origins. Only two. Either that the universe is the result of creation by a free personal agency, that's God, or that in some way or other, the universe creates itself. They're the only two possibilities. You see how the Bible fits into that very nicely. You either begin with the notion of a transcendent creator, who is personal and finds that personhood in his being as a trinity. And God is at the origin of everything. Thus, there is order and rationality and structure to the world that God has made. Or we find that the universe creates itself in which case there is only change and evolution and nothing is solid or structured. Which one do you think our present world is opting for? <laughs> it's clear to me that uh, as we do our evangelism, we really should be confronting people with these two options. And they cannot get out from underneath those two possibilities. It's either one or the other. And how interesting is it then that the, we find the same statement 
being made 2,000 years ago. Speaking of the right side of history, uh, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.25, I've read this text many times, but there was a time a few years ago where it just hit me between the eyes, and I wrote a book about it, and my friend there with the cap told me that he just finished this book, which is entitled One or Two, and if it intrigues you, I would suggest you get a hold of this book. You can get it on Amazon or go on our website. But the Lord has been using this book. It's entitled One or Two, Seeing a World of Difference. <clears throat> what does Paul say 2,000 years ago? They exchanged the truth about God for the lie. So you've got the truth and the lie. By the way, in some... Some of your translations, it's a lie. I can say with great authority that that's false. It's the lie. It's a definite article, Bob. Topsude. <laughs> Bob Stevens is a linguist and uh, studying Greek and Hebrew at seminary. But when you pick up the, uh, the Greek New Testament and look at it, it is actually the lie. So they exchange the truth about God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Isn't that stunning? That Paul says what Colin Gunton said a few years ago, that there are only two possibilities. Either you worship creation or nature as the ultimate source of everything or the creator who is blessed forever. There are no other possible ways of talking about existence. So you see how we're zoning in to two worldviews, two cosmologies, one based on the ultimacy of nature as it sort of develops without much of anything guiding it, uh, and, and people can figure out which way they want nature to go, whether I am Bruce or Caitlin, is my choice. Jenna, by the way. Um, I hope you got that. You see how we can now start reconfiguring sexuality according to our choice because we are ultimate in the way we put the world together. And, and this is a massive reality in our time that has just happened in the, in the last few years, as a matter of fact. Obviously, in other areas, it was already happening as we accepted evolution as a uh, scientific theory and so on and began to dismiss God from that area altogether. But what I find interesting is that the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago is serving us up a whole vision of cosmology by suggesting to us that you can only put, put the world together in two ways. And one obviously fits with the biblical revelation of God as the creator, and the other with paganism, where nature is all there is. And he's arguing this in the first century to the Christians in Rome in Romans chapter 1. And he shows in that first chapter that people uh, know God but reject him. And then he shows that they, that's sort of verses 18 through 22. In verse 23, he talks about people worshiping images of animals and of human beings. Well, I think that the worship that we give to our own human right to define ourselves is part of that kind of idolatrous worship, even if we don't have actual physical images, though I'm told that certain radical feminists do have images of the goddess Isis in their Manhattan apartments. Anyway, that would fit if people do start worshiping images of animals and, and human beings and so on. And then Paul argues 
in this analysis of the pagan cosmology, all in Romans 1, that once you get rid of God as the creator, once you start worshiping the creation, you get to human behavior and how you exist sexually. And it's interesting, in verse 26 of Romans 1, Paul having said in Romans 1.25, they worship and serve the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever, verse 26 begins, for this reason. What reason? And what does he go on to describe? He goes on to describe lesbianism and male homosexuality. He says that exists for this reason. Well, that means verse 25. Because they worship and serve nature, creation, then you will find and, you, and, and make nature divine and then worship nature in its uh, images, then you will find yourself engaged in the perversion of sexuality, namely the image of God will be distorted. Now you see, that is all a very logical progression. So when you reread this text, do notice that statement at the beginning of verse 26, for this reason. Paul is showing us that while doubtless we can explain various reasons why a given homosexual became a homosexual because of bad relationship with his father and so on, but that the ultimate reason of homosexuality is a complete disfigurement of the very nature of existence. And I find it quite fascinating that as we have seen the rise of paganism in the West, we have seen the rise of homosexuality. I, I think Paul is being vindicated before our eyes, as a matter of fact, as he has developed this, as he looked at the Roman world. So to say that Romans 1, 26 to 28 is a pesky verse or a clobber text <laughs> is a failure to understand the brilliant logic of Paul's argumentation here. And uh, I could go into that in detail, but this is perhaps not the moment. But all I want to conclude is that Paul is giving us a cosmology. He's showing to us a, a composite understanding of paganism. As he does that, and I'll get into that later, as he does that he's showing how, in verse 25, the worship and service of the creation produces all the other stuff. But it is a logical development. I tried to think a little bit about what Paul is saying in verse 25 of Romans 1, the worship and service of creation rather than the creator. And I gave those two possibilities the following names. Oneism or twoism. You know, if you can count from one to two, you can be a theologian. Even this guy in the yellow shirt, I'm glad you're here. Uh, this is great. I actually think that this way of breaking things down can be understood by young people. And quite young people, too. Uh, we've seen that effect in many cases. The two options are oneism or twoism. That should be simple, right? <laughs> you look at a television show, is it a oneist or a twoist program? What does oneism mean? Well, it means that all is one because all there is is nature and nature is made of the same stuff, so all there is is one. And you know, we keep celebrating we are the world and the world is one with the high priest Al Gore, though he's disappeared from the scene these days. I think he's busily spending his multi-millions that he made out of that heresy. But anyway, um, you can look at various 
things on television and, and ask yourself, is that a oneness movie? You can ask yourself in, in a church, is that practice a oneness practice where God is brought into this world as part of the world instead of recognizing God as transcendent and distinct, which is what twoism is, you see. Twoism is the biblical re revelation that there is not one kind of existence, but two. There is the creator, who is totally transcendent and not dependent at all, and the creation, two forms of existence that explain everything. And that explains the gospel, that explains how we look at the world, the way the world is constituted, because if God is distinct from the creation, and that is absolutely essential to him, and not at all dependent upon it, then he has created the world to reflect that reality. And so when God creates the world, of course, he creates distinctions. Since God and we are distinct, God puts distinctions in the world to reaffirm that truth. And so we are called upon, you see, as God's creatures in his image to live out the truth in our own lives of twoism, in our sexuality, for instance. Heterosexuality is twoist. Hetero means other. Homosexuality is oneist because homo means the same. And so you have in these two possible views of sexuality, actually these two worldviews of oneism and twoism. I'll get into that a little later, so don't worry that I'm going too fast. But uh, I do want you to see that we are living in a time when the cosmology is crucial and it's and the old cosmology of Scripture is being deconstructed and the ancient pagan cosmology of oneism is being reconstituted as the norm. That's why we are suffering as a church today, both in the culture and because certain churches have bought into this oneness way of thinking about existence in their theology and in their worship. And we cannot afford, Nate, to do that, can we? So, uh, in the issue of homosexuality and of sexuality in general, you see, we are living through this clash of worldviews. So it isn't two cute, tuxedo-clad guys on a wedding cake, so cute. It is actually the clash of two timeless worldviews that make or break a civilization. Does that make sense? You might think I'm exaggerating. You won't. You won't because I have some statements of leading homosexuals who see that sexual expression as precisely what I just said, an expression of a oneist worship of nature. I use the term paganism sometimes because paganism is actually the worship of nature. And you can do that in a thousand different ways, of course. You can do it in very sophisticated ways, very uh, traditional ways, as in Wicker and witchcraft and so on. You can actually do it um, as an atheist. An atheist is a oneist because he disallows any possible reality outside of uh, this present existence. And so it's another form of oneism. So you have spiritual oneism and non-spiritual oneism. And that's why Paul's definition, you see, is so powerful and includes everybody. But the evidence of the clash of worldview in our time is quite stunning, is it not? Um, 
as we watch how our present-day culture just seems to be colliding and coming up against what used to be considered normal is now considered to be radical and hateful and so on and so forth. We are really changing our minds from one worldview to another. And I have an example of the kind of thinking that has produced this reemergence of paganism in once, the once Christian West from Jeremy Rifkin, who is an advisor to the European Union and was head of the largest global economic development team in the world, who made this statement a few years ago. Uh, fasten your seatbelts. You will not believe what this man says. He's, he was considered to be a futurist, and people listened to him. We no longer feel ourselves to be guests in someone else's home and therefore obliged to make our behavior conform with a set of pre-existing cosmic rules. You catch that? We're not in anyone else's home. It is our creation now. We make the rules. We establish the parameters of reality. We create the world, and because we do, we no longer feel beholden to outside forces. We no longer have to justify our behavior, for we are now the architects of the universe. We are responsible for nothing outside ourselves, for we are the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. What a statement of total radical apostasy from what was once taken as normal. Well, it's uh, no surprise that this kind of viewpoint which has been pushed among the radicals uh, and is now being brainwashed into the general public uh, produces the kind of culture in which we live. So oneism is on the rise in our culture. I see it very clearly, and you do too, once you have heard what I said, in the whole development of homosexuality. But there are many other ways in which oneism is beginning to take over. I think the more we see the government taking control, tending towards a totalitarian state, we will end up with a oneist politics, where there is only one authority, and it is the authority of the state. Getting rid of God, you see, as a supreme and exterior being is the very way of defending classic democracy, because everyone can appeal outside of the state to an authority beyond the state. But the more we get rid of God, it sounds like we're getting freedom, but actually we're being confined to the authority of those who grab power and then claim that they express the state's right to rule over us. So in that sense, we are quickly moving to a oneist sort of politics. So we have to keep our eye on that uh, if we want to maintain some kind of freedom. Another way that this oneist thinking is taking over our culture is um, through the power of Eastern meditation. Those of you who are interested in the subject, note a particular book, Philip Goldberg, Goldberg, American Veda. Veda is Indian philosophy from the past. And this man shows how the West has been taken over by Hinduism. C.S. Lewis, in his book, uh, Miracles, says that there are two forms of religion which are totally opposed one to the other. And he said they were Christianity and Hinduism. So... <laughs> 
if the West is now being taken over by Hinduism, it is then crushing its antithesis, which is the Christian faith. And um, we see this happening in our time, as Philip Goldberg describes. He um, talks about a Hindu ideology that has taken over the West, and he uses the term Advaita. Now, you didn't think you were going to get Sanskrit. For no extra charge, by the way, uh, Advaita, A-D-V-A-I-T-A. That's a privative, by the way. Uh, Advaita, you wonder what it means? It means not to. Isn't that interesting? Not to. So this Hindu ideology then is coming into the West and telling everybody that there's no such thing as distinctions, that there's no such thing as the distinction between God and nature, and that everything is one. Where do you see that? Well, you see that in mindfulness meditation, yoga, which is taking over vast amounts of the world right now, even in communist China. And I, I looked at a group of uh, very important people who, some of them are not too far from here on Big Sur, at uh, Esalen, <laughs> who, uh, and I get these odd emails every day from all over the place, and one of them was saying that meditation is the key to the creation of a new world. Now, meditation seems so innocuous, doesn't it? Just sitting there staring at the wall, how could you create a new world? And yet they start to go into detail. Meditation, they claim, creates a new kind of human being with values very different from what we know today. So meditation actually changes values. It creates a new consciousness unlimited by the old assumptions of separation. Ah, you see that notion of separation has to go with this vision and rejects the normativity of the binary. Have you been hearing the use of the term binary recently? Uh, there are some people who now call themselves in their sexuality non-binary. That is to say, they, they don't think of themselves as either male or female. And I've been reading that recently a lot. It's one of the categories of sexuality right now, non-binary. Binary means two, by the way. So uh, this rejection at this level of a twoist worldview is very clear. And uh, indeed, in a number of colleges, they talk about destroying the binary, getting rid of the notion of two. So you've got the Hindu Advaita, then you've got the West proposing this non-binary worldview. Well, this uh, meditation process believes that they've unlocked the potential of the human being through direct knowing. This is interesting. It's the old term gnosis. In the ancient pagan system, gnosis was a direct knowing of God in the self. And they argue that by this discovery, and it is, it is a spiritual explosion, an enlightenment, by which these Westerners come to understand that actually they are God. That Gnosis reveals to them that they are a new species <laughs> and that they can be a new consciousness that will reconfigure the world. So, you see, it's happening at the level of sexuality uh, without most people knowing what's happening, but it's also happening at the more philosophical, theoretical level of spirituality, where more and more people are being caught up in this uh, emphasis on my being one with everything. 
through various forms of meditation. And you see, that's where I'm suggesting that some churches go all wrong in their adoption of this kind of spirituality. Um, Non-dual spirituality, it's sometimes called. And at Fuller Seminary, uh, Richard Rohr, a Roman Catholic priest, was teaching non-dual spirituality to the students at an evangelical seminary. So, you know, this kind of uh, oneist ideology is sort of popping up all over the place. But it's especially popping up uh, in sexuality with this determined destruction of the binary. Some have begun to describe this new sexuality as indeed the old Gnosticism, that old heresy of the rejection of the physical and the acceptance only of the spiritual. So the, the physical, you see, can be refused because it has no authority, whereas the spiritual within becomes the authority. And uh, I'm trying to sell this book because it sits in my garage. And some people tell me it's the best book I've ever written. Well, I think so. No. Uh, but I did write a book called Stolen Identity, The Conspiracy to Reinvent Jesus in 2006. I had studied Gnosticism at Princeton and wrote half a dissertation on it. And then my dissertation uh, advisor left to become Archbishop of Gothenburg, so too bad for my thesis. So I did another one. Anyway, I, I got pretty deep <laughs> into Gnosticism. And, uh, you know, Gnosticism in the past, I think we're seeing it come back again in the spirituality now, the meditation and so on. Gnosticism in the past rejected the objectivity of the flesh. The flesh was evil, it was no good. The inner spirit was the right thing. And so you find statements in the Gnostic text that were rediscovered in 1945 from the second through the fourth century, probably those Gnostic texts called Nagamati texts, rejecting marriage and childbirth, flee maternity, destroy the works of femaleness, some of the statements you find in these Gnostic texts, and they held that androgyny was the ideal. What is androgyny? It is the joining of male and female in one person, non-binary. And isn't that interesting <laughs> that this fundamentally pagan understanding uh, is a non, it, it, it espouses the non-binary view of sexuality? But it's also to be noted that this ancient Gnosticism rejected the creation and God the creator. And there's one stunning moment where the Gnostic goddess Zoe, daughter of Sophia, quote, breathed fire upon Yahweh's face and threw him into hell. That's a pretty radical form of Christianity, wouldn't you say? Because <laughs> they did claim to be Christian, if you can believe as much. God, the creator, is thrown into hell. That's what's happening today. That's why it's so dangerous. We are rejecting God, the creator, out of hand. It doesn't seem to enter into our way of thinking about how we organize the world anymore. Well, Gnosticism is a Christianized version of ancient paganism. And if you're interested in this subject, I wrote a rather long uh, essay that was published uh, in the Evangelical Theological Society's journal, JETS, 
entitled Androgyny, the Pagan Sexual Ideal. If you type in Peter Jones Androgyny on Google, it will come up. And it's a 30-page paper actually going into a fascinating question. That is, the spread of homosexuality throughout the world, throughout time and space. Time and space. Now, I used a number of well-known scholars of religion to work with this subject. But what I was able to conclude, which others have, is that in classic pagan cults, the priest or shaman is invariably a homosexuality, a homosexual. Do you hear that? This is not a modern phenomenon. <laughs> and it's in all these pagan religions. Peter Jones, Androgyny, The Pagan Sexual Ideal, Jets, 43, September 2000. From the second millennium BC, the worship of Ishtar, the goddess Ishtar, where we find that she has homosexual priests through the first century of Sibele, the goddess of Ephesus, also has homosexual priests. Uh, Augustine watched the parade of these galloi, as they're called, homosexual priests, almost like a gay parade. He was disgusted by what he saw in the streets of Carthage. And uh, it goes through in the post-Christian, well, after, after the Christian early period, uh, you see it, for instance, in the forests of Borneo and the forests of Africa. It was uh, throughout the s southern American states with the Mayans and the Aztecs. They all had homosexual shamans. And when the con conquistadores came in, they were so shocked that they sort of physically wiped it out. But there's evidence to show that uh, this was the case. And so you have to ask, if you cannot indicate by direct contact, which you can't, why is it then that these pagan cults seem to always arrive at an embodied expression of spirituality in forms of homosexuality. <clears throat> and I think the correct conclusion is that paganism and homosexuality go together. That homosexuality, as Paul said, for this reason, homosexuality is the embodiment of paganism. And what is the goal of paganism? It is to destroy the binary. That's the memory that God is the creator. And to join the opposites. Conjunctio oppositorum. Joining the opposites. That is to say, taking what is different and joining them together in a sort of relativism where the human being then can dominate the world. But it's totally relativistic. So good and evil, right and wrong, male and female, all those elements are joined together and confused and difference is rejected. I'll just give you, what time should I stop this meandering around here? Um, about 4.30? It's interesting stuff, though, isn't it? It's, it, it? It sort of shows you that what we're seeing today is much deeper in terms of its spirituality than what it generally appears. It's presented today simply as civil rights, if you like, uh, or personal rights, and so we have to bow to that. But behind it, for this reason, there is a massive presence of spiritual paganism. Well, there are a few couple of people who 
have written about this from the perspective of homosexuality, leaders in the movement. One is June Singer, <clears throat> June Singer, uh, who in 1977 wrote the book Androgyny Towards a New Theory of Sexuality. <clears throat> June Singer was a Gnostic. She was also a disciple of Carl Jung. And um, I just wrote a book. Could you get it out of my bag? It's there, I think, yeah. That's it, yeah. The Other World View. And in it, I go into the importance of Carl Jung, who was indeed a, uh, a Swiss psychologist at the beginning of the development of psychology at the turn of the 20th century, and along with uh, Freud, developed psychoanalysis and so on. And he dreamt of a new humanity. And it was a new humanity based upon the joining of the opposites and the uh, destruction of all distinctions. That was where you found psychological health. And part of the psychological health that you would get would be to give free expression to your fantasies. That was part of Jung's ther therapy. And it became extremely powerful in the West. The Rockefellers took it over and financed it and so on. And uh, really, I think that Jung has been a powerful influence on Western thinking. And it sort of describes at a deep level what we're seeing today in terms of people just expressing their fantasies and saying, that's I, and who are you to tell me that that's wrong, so I can be what I want to be. Well, anyway, June Singer was a close associate with Carl Jung, and she was at his bedside when he died and so on. So she is clearly giving expression to Jung's idea of a new humanity when she writes that book, Androgyny, towards a new theory of sexuality. And here's what she says. What lies in store as we move towards long for conjunction of the opposites. See, I wasn't just making this up. You find this in pagan texts. Oneism, that is oneism, can the human psyche realize its own creative potential through building its own cosmology and supplying it with its own gods? At that time, at the... Well, around the 60s, people are talking about building a cosmology. This is interesting because, you know, at the New Age, we were discovering enlightenment as we practiced these various forms, but nobody quite knew what that meant until people started saying, wait a minute, behind these experiences of enlightenment, there's surely the application of all that in a theory of existence, a cosmology. And this is what this woman is saying. We need to build our own cosmology, supplying it with our own gods. 